Hi, I'm Matt Quinn. Thanks for joining us for Decision Point from Ivy Publishing at the Ivy Business School. Offshore outsourcing was a prominent strategy at the turn of the century as globalization shifted the operations of Western companies. During his 2016 U.S. presidential campaign, then-candidate Donald Trump renewed public debate over offshoring with his message of economic populism, Make America Great Again, a commitment to bringing manufacturing jobs home. More recently, the Trump administration's trade war with China has accelerated global sourcing moves, with some American companies reshoring and many others shifting operations to other Asian countries with manufacturing prowess, such as India or Vietnam. The pandemic has of course kept this conversation top of mind, notably around medical supplies that were in short supply in many countries and companies shifting operations to health. One notable example was Scott's miracle Grow, headquartered in Marysville, Ohio, which used its factories in California to produce face shields to help local hospitals. Today, we'll rewind the tape on the long-standing sourcing debate. I'm joined by Professors John Gray and Michael Leiblein to speak about their best-selling case, Scott's miracle Grow, the spreader sourcing decision. Professor Gray is an expert on outsourcing, offshoring, and reshoring. He teaches data analysis and global sourcing at The Ohio State University's Fisher College of Business. Professor Liveline, also at Fisher, has consulted with numerous clients in the U.S. and Europe on outsourcing decisions. He teaches courses on competitive strategy, innovation strategy, and innovation management. I hope you like today's episode. John, when you think back to what sparked your interest in writing the case and getting it down on paper and bringing this to the classroom, what was it that stood out to you as, as interesting and something that you wanted to follow? Uh, so this case actually originated as a student project in my class. So in my initial global sourcing class at Ohio State, um, Scott's miracle Grow agreed to help students, uh, have students help them with this decision. They opened up, they, they flew them to California and brought them to the Temecula plant. They brought them to headquarters and shared with them a lot of data. And the project turned out really, really good. Uh, Scott's was really pleased with the analysis the students had done. And one of the students, actually, the, the third author, Shyam uh, Karunakaran, actually said, hey, why don't we write this up as a case? I'd like to, I'd like to see this published. This is really interesting. And uh, Michael and I were working on some projects at the time, and, and uh, we both found it extremely interesting. It was a difficult decision that Scott's had. They had a you know, kind of more expensive current location at that time. A lot of people were going to China uh, with things like plastic buckets, which is essentially what they were doing, plastic buckets and assembly. Um, and so we thought it'd be really interesting to go through the analysis we had gone through to show that maybe China wasn't necessarily the right answer at that time. Well, that's really cool to hear about the the organization taking an interest in in getting this story out. Do you, do you remember what what it was that they saw, or was it uh, they had an interest in cases and they had a relationship with you before that? Because that's uh, that's doesn't always happen where you get a company really uh, making the decision and pushing for it. Yeah, well, the student was the one who initiated the conversation with the company, and then we we went to the company and, and asked them if they would allow it to happen. And once they once we got going, they got kind of excited about it. We used real names um, in in the case uh, for the most part, and, and and I still occasionally see the people, and they're happy to know that you know thirty thousand or more students have read their their story. Um, so they they just felt like it was a it was it was worthy of telling um, the, the challenging decision that they that they had to make. 
And it sounds like they really opened the books and and gave great access, which you can see that in the case. And one, it makes the case a lot easier to write, but it also really makes that narrative so much more, one, authentic and easier to dive down into. What else do you think it gave, you know, having this access to the students, what else did it do as far as the the process and the end, uh, end product? Well, the students that the, the, the students spent the, the semester um, pouring through a binder of data that was you know, four inches thick with contract manufacturer quotes and a bunch of internal information and really built bottoms up cost models from for China and for the U.S. and then and then considered the risks and uncertainties as well. Um, so that, that without that time and that data and that investment in the student group being so engaged and doing such a good job and Scott's being so helpful. Um, it would have been much harder to write a case of the quality that this one turned out to be. Oh, that's yeah, cool. Think- so some some kudos to Scott's there. And Michael, what do, what do you think? I, I mean, I think I think what also comes into this is, I don't know if it's apparent to everyone. I mean, in some sense, the Miracle Grow Company was out in New York, uh, but Scott's is right up the street from Columbus, so, from Ohio State. So there's a lot of, inter- you know, several of our students, uh, you know, work at Scott's. Uh, we've all, or several of us have, you know, had Scott's executives in our executive education courses. So there's a lot of ongoing conversation about what's going on at the company uh, that allows you to have some of this richness that I think I think it makes it interesting. You know, you walk in saying we're probably going to be able to, you know, get access to the appropriate data and the sort of the uh, the, the issues that they're at heart of some of the decision making. And, and then, of course, you know what was interesting to hear was it was an interesting. You know, interdependent sequence of choices or set of choices with the, you know, the outsourcing choice as well as the location choice, and you know that that really gives us an opportunity to, you know, ex- explore the limits of what we think we know on the academic side, you know, and maybe invest in the case development in a way that you know you're probably going to learn something as well. Um, so, you know, it was a great, great, great example of what could happen. That's very cool. And one of the themes that comes out in the case is, as what you've already mentioned, offshore outsourcing. Um, could you explain this for the listeners, not only in the context of the case, but uh, John, what does that mean? What is offshore outsourcing and, and what are you teaching the students about that in, in the case when you teach? Yeah, sure. Uh, as Michael pointed out, it was a really interesting case because it wasn't just a location decision. It was a make-buy decision as well. And, and a lot of... Uh, at the time, a lot of companies were moving activities to China um, and also at the same time outsourcing them without necessarily explicitly thinking through the implications of the, of the make-buy decision. So offshore outsourcing is, is doing two things at once, taking an activity and moving it offshore, which is often to a low-cost location. And then outsourcing is taking an activity that you were performing in-house and now having another uh, entity perform it for you. Um, and so, uh, again, the, the richness in the case is not just the incredible that the data and all of the analysis of the location decision, but also the additional complication that the two choices given in the case really are keep it in house in California or outsource it to China. And that outsourcing decision is also pretty, pretty complicated. Yeah, I think what I'd, I'll add to that, we believed it was a, a problem of some contemporary importance. But there's also so much confusion about what offshore outsourcing may or may not be. I mean, we, we use that term colloquially, um, 
But unless we're talking about uh, to, to you know paraphrase uh, Miles Shaver and uh, you know a big step away from the home country, we don't care about offshore. I mean that's sort of a silly. It's a location choice, right? So I think what we care about is there are these differences in formal and informal institutions associated with conducting business in these locations. And as, as John was saying, and then on top of that, we care about uh, the different ways of control and coordination across, you know, make buy outsourcing decisions. Uh, and now we have this interdependence between these, these two choices between outsourcing and location choice. You know, so I think what happens, I mean, uh, speculation, I guess, at some level, what I think is an interesting about the case is when you're teaching it, you can come and talk about, you know, what are the important factors that affect each of these choices individually? You know, how do we consider them? Should we consider them jointly? How do we, you know, how do, what changes when we consider them jointly? You know, if they're interdependent, is there a sequencing of choices? Do I think about one or the other? If I've been using, you know, some of the tools or frameworks we've been teaching in the class about outsourcing or location choice uh, independently, does that lead me to an incorrect decision about how, you know, the, the combination of these choices, I think it, it just generates this sort of cool, rich discussion. Yeah, there's a ton of nuance in that. And you, you talked about, you know, initially coming into this conversation, I'm thinking, okay, maybe there's just this one decision point, which we often see in a case, there's one thing that's very clear. But it sounds to me that once you got into it, and got into Scott's and started looking at, there was maybe a few different dilemmas that we're facing. How did you narrow it down or did you leave a lot of purposefully leave some of that nuance or lack of clarity in the case? Because that's often a choice an author has to do. Do we go pinpoint or do we leave a little mystery in there? How did you guys handle that, John? So um, Michael may uh, know better um, in the writing of the case exactly how purposeful we were in, in writing it the way we did. Um, but having taught it now for 14 years, um, there is a lot of uh, ambiguity left in, in, in both decisions, uh, which really helps the discussion. The students basically are able to make logically consistent arguments based on make-by theory and, and, and factors driving location decisions, really for either decision. Um, and they're also, as they sometimes do, able to make logically inconsistent arguments. Um, but uh, the make-by decision was actually quite subtle um, with that in-mold labeling in, in the case is, 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 is one thing, that, that, that the level of asset specificity of that is, and the level of um, strategic importance are both a bit debatable. Um, and, but students can take a, a stance and make a recommendation um, based on that stance. Um, really kind of almost either way. And, and I think that that richness is really cool uh, to be able to bring out in the classroom after having taught an introduction to make buy and an introduction to location decisions and decision-making under uncertainty and risk. Yeah, I think I think John's hitting is spot on. I mean, so one of the beautiful things here is that, you know, it seems so simple. What appears to be a relatively simple product, you know, what appears to be a relatively simple, you know, cost decision, John's comment was maybe I learned it thought about something ahead of time. I don't think I did what I, you know, I think the problem frame has really evolved for me over time. I think we knew we had some tools to address the basic questions. What I've certainly learned over time is that there was a lot more subtlety to, to the problem. So, and what I mean by that is, you know, I've framed uh, over time, I've changed my frame and formulation of the problem. I used to, I used to see this as, you know, clearly risk and hold up issues, you know, 
now I see more of the, the, the challenges of managing the, the temporally managing the delivery of the spreaders to the retail outlets. In some sense, reflecting back on our earlier conversations, that's running an exec, you know, running our classes with some of the executives from Scott's. And you start hearing the, the folks who are running Home Depot or Lowe's and what challenges they're running into. You start saying, oh, this is really what's going on, um, you know, in terms of uh, some of the problems they're having matching and getting, you know, literally getting a spreader or fertilizer to, you know, a Home Depot in Columbus, Ohio, or in, uh, you know, Southern California on the right weekend when everybody's going to be doing their, uh, you know, using their, their working in their lawn and garden. So uh, sort of really interesting to see how the, the problem frame you know, for me, has evolved over time. And let me just add to, to your addition, that evolution is interesting because from you know, Mike, Michael's a, a strategy professor, I'm an operations management professor. And from an operations perspective, you know, inventory theory is well established, matching supply and demand and tools to do that. And know, uh, you know, the long lead time is probably one of the first things that is evident to a, an operations professor about moving this activity to China. And, and to me, is much more subtle and much more of an evolution in my own learning and thinking about kind of make by theory and 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 um, some of the what I consider the more subtle things. So it's an interesting you know evolu- different maybe differing evolutions based on our differing backgrounds and areas of expertise. Um, but regardless, you know the, the, in two thousand and seven, uh, almost everybody would have thought a plastic bucket should be made in China, and <laughs> um, and and really even teaching the case and maybe it's partially how I've taught leading up to the case, but, you know, more and more students are recommending onshore than, than that still, I still get a, a mix. If I have five case groups, three, oh, three might recommend onshore two offshore, you know, in a given year. Um, but it, the percentage recommending onshore has gotten higher through the years. And it is, and it is interesting, right? It's something they come in with strong opinions on, right? It's, I think everybody says, I understand what a spreader is. I understand what a bucket is. I understand a couple of, you know, I have some bias, maybe it's bias, maybe it's something else. I understand what the problem is. I'm not worried. It's not, uh, you know, it's not a pharmaceutical drug that I, I'm not really sure what this is or how this acts. It, it's a seemingly simple problem. And then all sorts of nuance comes out. And I, I really like the fact that there is that nuance because over time, you know, we're, we're recording this the middle of, of July. Uh, when you go back and say, teach this in September or October, the answers that you're going to get and the opinions from students that you're going to get then are going to be or could be radically different than the last time you taught it, just given the, you know, what's happening in, in, in trade and global economy, et cetera. So I really love the fact that you guys have left in this opportunity for evolution in the case and haven't made it so fine tuned that there's only one, one way to look at it. So that's, that's kind of a cool thing about, uh, about the case. So, John, I want to, I want to come back to something you touched upon just briefly, which is the, the teaching note. And so in the teaching note, you cover, you know, a wide variety of frameworks to help evaluate the decision uh, when you're when you're going through this in class. Uh, one of the interesting parts is that the financial analysis tended to lean in a different direction than other models fo- that focus on more of the qualitative assessments. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's kind of a cool nuance about the case as well, is depending on which way you look at it, qualitative or quantitative you could arrive at some different uh, recommendations. Yeah, so I think a lot of um, a lot of offshoring decisions, if you will, or decisions to move an activity to low cost location, the, 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 the measurable costs will tend to favor uh, moving. 
uh, going offshore. Um, but the qualitative risks and, uh, and ambiguities will probably tend to favor staying closer, assuming the demand is, is local as well. Uh, it's a different much it's a different situation if the demand is is also offshore um and so we we wrote the case with a careful financial analysis and the case gives you a lot of data to do a financial analysis and if and you're right if you do it correctly that offshoring uh, would be pretty pretty heavily favorable in a way that a cfo might get excited or, or a vp of supply chain looking to cut some costs might get excited and uh but you know matching supply and demand being one of many um hidden risks and challenges are are also exist and so the um the 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 decision making process in the case is presented as kind of evaluate the costs then look at the qualitative factors and decide what to do now i'm a little bit ignoring the make buy part which is a whole nother thing i'm i'm, I'm really focusing on and that's another ambiguity and interestingly in teaching the case in, in for 14 years and then i i started studying some uh decisions of actually companies that had offshored and then reshored so I went and actually interviewed the managers involved in those decisions and talked about the process by which they made those decisions they did tend to make the offshoring decisions driven by cost and the reshoring decisions driven by other factors as 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 one might expect so they were learning about these hidden costs and risks and so after that, it got me to thinking about what is the right decision process for one of these decisions? Um, is it uh, to first evaluate the costs and then figure out whether, you know, then figure out whether the other things are worth enough to, to walk away from the cost savings? Um, and so that did lead to kind of the updated teaching note and some research that um, but thinking about how, you know, current, the current thinking in procurement is total cost of ownership, which is you evaluate costs and you try to add on other costs. Okay. Um, but should we maybe start with value? Um, try to understand what firm values matter that are affected by this decision and, and anchor people on those to try to debias the decisions that are already biased in favor of measurable costs, which is also happens to be the incentives uh, of the people making these decisions often are to, are to cut out costs. So that's kind of how I started teaching the, the, the case in the last few years. And I'm working now on trying to maybe even update the teaching notes uh, to reflect that. And I think that's uh, a cool point that you bring up that I want to pause on for a second is the updating of things that, you know, the case is a few years old now. You're still using it. And I really like that you're adding the new thoughts and the new research that's coming out to enhance that teaching note. And for those that are thinking of writing a case or have had a case that's uh, that's been around for a few years that's always a really good option to say, hey, here's some new thought or here's a, a new model with which to look at the challenge or the decision point. That's always an option to update teaching notes. So thanks for bringing that up, John, because it is uh, something that helps maintain the relevancy of uh, really important topics and, and for sure the cases. Yeah, I think that really, I mean, the new, the new, the new uh, you know, analyses and statistical reports John's added have added some interesting stuff. I mean, one of the conversations going on now, a friend of mine has this question, why do managers choose too much governance? And it's, you know, sort of more psychological, behavioral, what's going on? Um, and I always find that question interesting, right? So it's, it's, it's interesting that even in the question of separating out the quantitative and the qualitative, I don't, I don't know that that's quite right. I mean, we think about, let's say, Black and Scholes formula and call and put options they're, they're based on some sort of, you know, assumed distribution of, you know, we're assuming a Gaussian distribution of outcomes, we calculate the value. 
So I, I think we do the same thing if we actually really push the analysis on some of what we would, I think, in this case, characterize as some of the qualitative frameworks. If we really push the analysis, we can actually get numbers as well. Just as you can estimate a call option, you could estimate, you know, think through what do we mean by core competencies and capability logic. And so I think one of the nice things about the case is, you know, we, we probably talk about those things in an overly simplistic way in a lot of classes. And it misses the point of the tool. And now you can sit back and say, okay, so how would you, you know, what assumptions do you have to make about, um, you know, what the competence is, when, whether you're going to make this investment and it's going to actually pay off or not. And so it's, it's another way to, to, to push forward another pasture of discussion with the case. One of the things that comes up, and you've brought it up already, is the case demonstrates the difficult internal, external political issues, you know, associated with uh, offshore outsourcing. Um, has the approach benefited you and the adopters of the case that, that you've talked to? Has that part of it come out in discussion? Is that a main thing that people say, wow, this difficulty is something we spend a lot of time on? What have you noticed? I guess I'll jump in on this one first. Um, I mean, this is one area. I mean, you asked earlier, I mean, you know, did you anticipate all these things? And, and I have to admit, no, um, and just for clarity. But this, this is the area where I've drastically changed the way I think about and teach the case. Uh, I think when we wrote it, I, I, I think we somewhat, well, at least I'll speak for myself. I was somewhat, somewhat simplistically attributed the differences in opinion between Temecula and corporate to incentive issues. And that's what fit with the, the, the theoretical uh, frame I was bringing to the problem. I was at, at that time, the way I was thinking, and John might've had more insight. Um, over time, I started thinking about framing the problem in terms of not only incentive differences, but you know, was there goal ambiguity? You know, was there a true disagreement between individuals about what was right? Uh, was there fragmented knowledge to different parties have different types of data or different individuals giving them data that influence their opinions. So what, what ends up happening now for me, uh, at least, is, um, and I guess this, this does pay more into the strategy versus uh, maybe the, procur the procur procurement side of the problem. Uh, you know, I pay a lot more attention to diagnosing the reasons why differences of opinion exist. You know, and then it's, okay, Assume, you know, what do we think is the real source of these differences of opinion between the individuals who, let's assume they're trying to do the right thing. Uh, is it just incentives or is there something else? Well, maybe it's a little ambiguous about what the right goal is, or maybe they have different sets of data. And then, well, what tools do we have? Okay, so if it's an incentive problem, we have certain tools. If it's a goal ambiguity problem, we have other tools. Uh, if it's fragmented knowledge, there's a third set. If there's different combinations, so you, again, yeah, I mean, this is, it becomes too much for one class, but, you know, depending on how the discussion, uh, you know, evolves, you can push into this whole conversation about what tools are appropriate to solve the problem based on your perception of what's leading to these disagreements. And so I've, I've taken a bit more of a simplistic approach with the politics, which is in the last few years, I've, I've played the role of the CFO slash corporate uh, and then had another team that was prepared the case kind of be my other corporate people and then have the students present. And the nice thing about this case is there's no, in my opinion, there's no unambiguously right answer. So no matter what the students say, I can challenge them. And, and <laughs> well, how can you justify that? And they always 
uh, experience, you know, the, the difficulty and kind of um, arguing um, that this, this decision with so much ambiguity. Uh, that's that's basically what I've done the last few years. I have not played the political aspect up uh, much as in my teaching. I love that. <laughs> you know, whatever they say, you, you can put a different spin on it and challenge them. What a that's a great, rich environment for the student to, you know, maybe feel a little uncomfortable and have to work through that and really give thought to their position as they as they go through the case. Uh, one word that you brought up, uh, Michael, as you were speaking was evolution. And as you know, the case evolves, the teaching note evolves, the discussion uh, in the classroom evolves. Have there been any surprises, real surprises, as you've taught the case where you go, man, I did not anticipate that <laughs> coming out in the discussion? Anything come to mind? Well, I, I mean, I think we've touched on several of these things. I think to me, you know, your opening question, if I recall correctly, was something about, you know, well, why did you write the case? And I think at the time it was, well, you know, this is an interesting, simple problem. We know what's going on at Scott's, you know. Yeah, this, there's a lot of data. There's a lot of there's a confluence of factors that comes to, comes together. But a lot of it was, hey, it's an apparent, apparently simplistic problem, a simple problem. Uh, the case appears straightforward. You know, I know what a spreader is. I can seemingly estimate the costs associated with Temecula or outsourcing to China. I know transportation costs. You know, I, so what's great about the case is the students walk in the room, they have an opinion, and then I think you know. A lot of what's happened is I've learned a lot, you know, some from my students, uh, you know, about all these other aspects of the problem. Some of it has been with, you know, ongoing literature, you know, so the academic literature has changed about how do we think about um, this interdependence between these choices. And there's some research coming out talking about, you know, is this unobserved errors? Uh, you know, is there something you know that's that's affecting this correlation between these choices? It, are they interacting with or directing each other? Is it you know is there a causal link between governance and location choice or location choice and governance choice? How is that affecting performance? So it, I think the academic literature has evolved. I think a lot of the things we've talked about on this during this conversation, you know, the political issues, the the richness of the various theoretical opinions that has evolved in my mind for sure um you know but it what's what's been interesting to see is the complexity of that 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 conversation um and i think you know the students have at least i i'm sure this is the case for john you know um you know our, our i i think this our students are starting to see ah there is some value to good rigorous business education if i really understood the theory i mean i thought i understood this i don't understand it um i i don't go to so far as to say you're wrong whatever you say but um you know, you, you, they're, they're seeing there's different aspects to the problem. What advice do you have for new case writers or others thinking of writing a case? Is there any main point that you'd like to, to give as advice? And what is the experience with this particular case taught you as a writer that you'll take forward for the next mm -hmm. case that you're, uh, that you're hopefully going to write? I'll share three points, or I hope I'll share three points. You know, I think the process can be educational. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, this is, there was a part of that in my initial thinking, but not fully. Uh, I think you want to pick the right context where you have access. I think you want to be really clear on the theoretical contribution of the case and what's the purpose of the case, or at least have some, let me, let me put it, let me put that just a little bit differently. I think you want to have a clear perception of how the case is adding value. 
and then understanding it might change. And what I, I mean by that is, you know, it's not a journalistic exercise. I mean, I read, at least for my tastes, too many cases where there's, you know, here's a wonderfully detailed case study of the decision-making process or the strategic process or the operational process in firm X, but there's no underlying theory or tool or framework or, you know, pedagogical objective. Uh, so you're trying to illustrate a point, help your students develop judgment, you know, and that judgment is hopefully based on some sort of rigorous theory or evidence or something along those lines. Um, and then I guess, which I, what I really, I don't know, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, John took too much of this and, Help me out. I, I think there is an art to writing a good case. I think, uh, you know, my friends Anita McGann, Jen Ripkin are these tremendous case writers that re- and those cases resonate with me. Um, you know, so I'd love to have learned from them. So, I mean, I think, you know, if, if, if I were to do this all over again, I'd say we what I you know thought about correctly was, hey, the context is right here. Scott's is cool. The, the decision is simple. Hey, I, I, there's a clear theory. Uh, that I have, uh, that I can contribute to, um, to help drive home a, a perspective or some help students develop some judgment in this area. But I would have been asking, hey, what do I really need to be thinking about when I'm writing a case other than sort of stumbling into it and evolving it over time? Yeah, I'll try to see if I can add to that at all. I think, I think the case, this is the only case I've written, and I, I do intend to write more, but I think uh, maybe not seeking to go write a case to write a case, but rather through your research or through, in this case, a really good student project, finding a rich environment that maybe there isn't something out there to illustrate is 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 one piece of advice. So falling falling into it through your research. Um, as far as the case, Mike Mike made great points, um, uh, particularly about having a, a theoretical point to make. Uh, but I would just add, you know, that I think what this case was actually, you know, the students do. They, they think about Bob Balcombe and him driving into work on a warm, sunny morning. I mean, I think telling a story, keeping it fairly short, providing enough data for the students to analyze and, and maybe the weaker students to feel like they've done their job by analyzing the given data and the stronger students to realize there's much more. Uh, I think that's another, another good thing about this case. No, that's great. And I want to go back to another thing. We often look for our research to guide a case being written or a, a contact that we might have. But that let's not overlook that power of a student suggestion, uh, a, a student taking an interest in a, a topic or a company. We're seeing more cases grow out of that. And it's a real fertile, you know, I hate to talk, it sounds corny because we're talking about Scots, but it's, it's fertile ground for, uh, <laughs> for a, a case to come out of. And so let's not overlook that as a huge opportunity. Students have some pretty awesome ideas for uh, uh, for cases and, and should be encouraged to bring those forward. So Michael, John, thank you uh, for joining us, uh, for sharing the experience that you've had. For me, uh, walking away from this conversation, I really am going to spend more time thinking about you know how cases evolve and how much that, that the little nuances and the gray areas can add so much to a conversation in the classroom. So thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Decision Point on Spotify or wherever you listen. And be sure to check out the show notes for links to cases, resources, and more. Have any feedback? Send us an email at cases at iv.ca.